everybody. Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast, audio essay edition. This is the first in a series of audio essays, readings, and sound experiments from myself, Robert Fay, Roman Sivkin, and Heston Hoffman. We hope you enjoy it. On today's podcast, the audio essay, In Search of the Writer-Diplomat Tradition, by Robert Fay. Marcel Proust is forever being lost to myth, reduced either to a gossip who meticulously chronicled Parisian salons, or even worse, a withdrawn asthmatic who became overly sentimental for the past. This reduction makes no room for Proust's admiration for technology or the diplomats and military men who made statecraft and war. Proust adored automobiles and was fascinated by German military aviation, and we find in Proust's novels countless examples of his passion for military strategy, diplomacy, and foreign affairs, which come together in the creation of his famed character, the diplomat, Monsieur de Norpois. Proust attended Sciences Po, which had been founded to educate an elite for France's civil and diplomatic posts. And though he developed a rich interest in relations between states, in the end, he knew a life of letters was his destiny. But Proust biographer Jean-Yves Tadier writes, Quote, the former pupil of the diplomatic section of the Sciences Po never wanted to be a diplomat, yet he wrote the novel about diplomacy that those novelists who were diplomats, Chateaubriand, Stendhal, Gobineau, Girardot, and Morand, never wrote. The writer-diplomat tradition, though largely ignored in the history of letters, has been critical to a number of European and Latin American writers, eight poets with diplomatic experience, including Octavio Paz and Chezois Meloche, have won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Tadier alluded to France's great tradition, which reached its apex in 1937, where 50% of the diplomats from the Quai d'Orsay, the French foreign ministry, were published authors. Mexico, among Latin American countries, has the most prestigious tradition, with Carlos Fuentes, Paz, and Sergio Patol, who I love, um, and these are a collection of writers so mighty that one could easily conclude there was a magical current uniting the diplomatic craft and literature. Geoffrey Chaucer was one of the first literary men to practice these duels art. He worked for the English Royal Service and conducted diplomatic missions on behalf of King Edward III in France, Spain, and Italy in the 1360s. Yet I'm tempted to go back even further to Paul the Apostle, the emissary of the nascent Christian nation, a proto-Vatican diplomat, if you will, who traveled through present-day Turkey, Syria, Greece, and Italy, among other countries. He recounted his adventures in his famous letters, his epistles to the young Christian communities. In his letters to the Ephesians, Paul makes a reference to his vocation, quote, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Yet despite this rich history, little has been written on the subject. In biographical treatments, one-night stands and obscure book reviews often get more attention. Pablo Neruda's biographer, Adam Feinstein, makes little mention of Neruda's diplomatic work as a counselor in Buenos Aires, among other places, instead noting, quote, the eight months Neruda spent in Buenos Aires were ones of intense sexual activity, but not with his wife, end quote. In the case of Paz, the Nobel Committee rightly acknowledged that the time, that his time spent in the diplomatic service was essential to his creative output, as well as providing him with leverage to influence, in this case by resigning uh, 
the actions of his own government. Quote, in 1962, Paz was appointed Mexican ambassador to India, an important moment in both the poet's life and work, as witnessed in various books written during his stay there, especially The Grammarian Monkey and East Slope. In 1968, however, he resigned from the diplomatic service in protest against the government's blood-stained suppression of the student demonstrations during the Olympic Games in Mexico, end quote. Part of this neglect can be explained by the informal nature of these positions, particularly before the Second World War. William Summers notes that in 1870, the Nation magazine complained that the U.S. minister to Russia, quote, spent nearly the whole term in a vain endeavor to be sober enough to be presented to the emperor, end quote. Writers have often filled counselor positions abroad where they may advise on cultural matters and, if they are lucky, are free of the weighty roles of formal ambassadors. Neruda spent years abroad working for the Chilean foreign ministry, but his entry into the service was due to nothing more than informal networking. In 1927, Neruda, quote, bumped into a friend of the foreign ministers, Manuel Bianchi, writes Feinstein. Quote, as soon as he heard of Pablo's wish to go abroad, Bianchi arranged a meeting with the minister who handed the poet a list of vacant positions overseas. Choose one, he said. Neruda chose Rangoon. India continues to maintain this venerable tradition with poet Abye Kumar serving in recent years as the Indian ambassador to Madagascar and Comoros. Kumar writes, quote, there are certain commonalities between the role of a poet and diplomat a poet prepares the philosophical background or vision of a world, a philosophical framework of how in the future things could shape up. A diplomat implements that vision, end quote. Linguist Dr. Biljana Scott believes the parallels are curiosity and openness of mind and heart, a sympathetic and creative imagination, skill at matters of redress, and the appreciation that language matters. She emphasizes how skillful handling of ambiguity in language is critical. Quote, in the arts, ambiguity is intended to allow for multiple meanings and multiple interpretations. Constructive ambiguity in diplomacy takes the form of adding a word that is positively connoted to a term that might carry negative overtones, such as just war, Spartan soft power, and in self and enlightened self-interest, end quote. Ambassador Stefano Baldi, who is a career Italian diplomat, believes that, quote, constructive ambiguity, ambiguity creates the necessary time and space to change attitudes and reach consensus. Kumar also thinks the isolation while serving abroad is important. The solitude from one's homeland and friends is critical to providing writers the distance they need to dive deep and create meaningful work. And for those who can't be creative, the ordinary ones... He notes that they often turn to alcohol. The United States remains a curious outlier to this tradition, though with two prominent exceptions, Washington Irving and James Russell Lowell. Both men served as foreign ministers in the 19th century, and both were immensely qualified for the task. I must admit it's difficult to imagine the author of Rip Van Winkle in Sleepy Hollow drinking his Spanish vermouth in Madrid or attending a bullfight, but he was a cosmopolitan character, and a wise choice to be minister to Spain in 1852. At the age of 59, he was an internationally famous writer fluent in the Spanish language, as well as a scholar of Spanish history. In 1828, the Spanish government invited him and other scholars to explore documents covering the Spanish conquest of the Americas. The result was Irving's book, Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. 
When he arrived in Madrid for his post, Irving's household goods were held by Spanish customs for a frustratingly uh, lengthy amount of time. Irving was serious about his duties, yet equally earnest about his daily comforts. He wrote angry letters to custom officials, itemizing his belongings, which included, quote, three barrels of brandy, 1,200 bottles of wine, 100 bottles of liqueurs, six dozen packs of playing cards, and 5,000 cigars, end quote. Daily necessities, indeed. James Russell Lowell was a poet, scholar, and editor of the Atlantic Monthly, greatly distinguished in his day, though entirely forgotten in our own. He served as minister to Spain as well as to Great Britain in the late 1800s. Though he was fluent in Spanish, it was the mastery of literary texts and historical documents. He was largely unable to manage everyday conversations, yet he was a determined man, diligent in his duties, and dedicated to learning colloquial Spanish. He described his daily schedule, quote, up at eight, from nine, sometimes to 11, my Spanish professor, at 11, breakfast, at 12, the legation, at three, home again, and a cup of chocolate, then read the paper and write Spanish till a quarter to seven, at seven, dinner, and at eight, a drive in an open carriage in the Prado till 10, to bed at 12 to one. In cooler weather, we drive in the afternoon. I am very well, cheerful and no gout, end quote. Proust never became a diplomat, but during World War I, he despised the chauvinism towards Germany he witnessed among some French intellectuals, and in particular the French press. He was critical of the French composer, Saint-Saëns, who penned an article denouncing the music of German composers Wagner and Richard Strauss, a fashionable Parisian habit at the time. He rejected the commonplace slurrings of Germans and German culture, writing, quote, it is true, Bosch does not figure in my vocabulary, and things do not seem as clear-cut as they do to some people, end quote. And adding in another letter, quote, If, instead of fighting a war with Germany, we were fighting one against Russia, what would they have said about Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, end quote? This is what only a writer could ask, even during the most horrible of circumstances. And today... The Russians can hack our elections, attack our soldiers, blackmail our president, perhaps, and we must protest, but we must always reaffirm our allegiance, our citizenship to the Russia of Dostoevsky, Babel, Shostakovich, Bulgakov, and Baryshnikov. Like Paul the Apostle, the first writer-diplomat, we must declare ourselves ambassadors in chains to what makes us human and what makes life worth living. For we are in perilous waters now, back in the same universe Bertolt Brecht described in the 1940s. Empires collapse. Gang leaders are strutting about like statesmen. The peoples can no longer be seen under all these armaments. Thank you for listening. And please let us know what you think on Apple Podcasts or on Twitter. Our handle is at FeelBookish. Thanks again. Thank you.